Good to see you. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. It is so good to see y'all. We're starting a new sermon series today. Uh, we're jumping into a sermon series we've entitled Harvest of Grace. Uh, and we're going to spend the first three weeks of that service in Luke 12. And then in the next three weeks, um, we're actually going to be looking at, at specifically at church planting. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit. Um, but we're going to be looking at, um, uh, we're actually going to be bringing in uh, some of our, our previous church plant leaders. Uh, so we're going to be talking about, in this series, we're going to be talking about how grace compels us into generosity. Like, doesn't suggest it, doesn't command it, it compels it. When we experience grace, it compels us to be generous. When we receive the generosity of God, it awakens within us a renewed experience of generosity toward others. And generosity is God's primary tool uh, that, that he uses to free us from the prison of our own greed. Okay, so let's take a look at Luke 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. 13 through 21. And uh, then we're going to be digging in. So if you have one of our Bibles, we're over on page 871. Uh, if, uh, if you've got your app um, or your own Bible, go ahead and flip over to Luke 12. And we're going to start in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all, before I jump into the text, I want to help frame the series, okay? Uh, we're we're going to be moving into, uh, in the life of the church, a season of tremendous missional engagement, right? We're going to be, we're going to be moving out on mission, um, and I want to set the context of what we're doing in the broader context of what God is doing, right? I want to align it. I want you to see that what we're doing is, is our, um, our way of moving into what God is already doing in the great mission of the gospel, uh, in the world. And, and so there's a couple components I want to, I want to share with that up front. First is about the capital campaign, uh, which capital campaigns, man, that's all about money. How can that even be spiritual? But, uh, there is actually pretty much nothing more spiritual in your life. What you do with your money not only reveals your heart, it shapes your heart. Jesus talked more about money than any other subject in the New Testament. Uh, what we do with our money is deeply and profoundly spiritual. Uh, and, uh, and so I want to give you a little bit of an update. We're, we're, uh, we have a little over a year left in our three-year capital campaign. We launched it in 2019, right before the great freeze of, uh, of the pandemic. And, um, uh, our goal was to pay off the building loan. Uh, we, we, we set a goal of about 1.1 million for the campaign, hoping that we would be able to reach that. And, um, we had a really good launch. Now, now we had three good reasons for wanting to pay off the, uh, the building note, right? The first was, 
uh, of course, to, to pay it off, right? To, that our monthly mortgage uh, would be paid off and we would have that money freed in our budget to invest into local ministry, right? We had identified critical areas that we needed to hire toward, uh, specifically in the area of family ministry and kids ministry. And, uh, and so um, paying off the, the mortgage was uh, part of the strategy of moving us in that direction and we continue to move in that direction. We have a lot uh, of good news and a lot of things to talk about coming up. Um, the, uh, the second thing is, is that we wanted to save the interest that would be paid on that loan, right? So every month we're paying on that loan. It may fit in our budget, right? But, but we're accumulating and paying toward a tremendous amount of interest. We wanted to save that so that that money could be invested again into, uh, the local ministry of the church. And then we wanted to pay it forward, uh, to Converge because this loan did come to us through our, our partner, Converge Mid-America. They loaned it to us so that we could buy this building, and as we pay it back to them, they're going to make that money available then to somebody else, another church planter, so they can buy a building, right? That money is invested into kingdom work, and so we, it, was, it was made available to us at a critical time so that we could take advantage of, of the opportunity of purchasing and renovating this building, and, uh, and as we pay that back, that money then is going to be made available to other young churches uh, so that they also can move in the direction that we have, right? So kind of an update, we had a pledge of, of $816,640 uh, from the capital campaign, uh, and that was in 2019. Um, and uh, uh, we have so far received just over $344,000 of that. And um, uh, a really cool number, because as we receive it, we, we send it in against the note. Uh, my math-minded friends tell us that we have already saved over $234,000 in interest um, in that process. And so we are, we set our plan, we're working our plan, and God is, is blessing through it. Now, of the amount that we collect, 90% of what we collect goes specifically toward paying off the loan. 10% is intentionally set aside for mission activities. 6% is that in, is invested in to converge, not just to pay off the note, but, but to invest in their ability to continue to partner with, raise up church planters, partner with young churches, and do the work that they do. Uh, the other 4% we have been setting aside specifically for our own church planting endeavors. Okay, so, so that kind of gives you an idea of where the money, where it's been coming in and, and where it's been going. And, and I want to say, man, if you've been part of this, thank you. Right, we we had no idea when the pandemic hit how that was going to affect our capital campaign. It had just launched, and what we have found is that um, many of our people, most of our people, have been um, uh, tremendously generous and and faithful. Have continued giving. Uh, some people, of course, hit some financial speed bumps, and and some things had to be adjusted. Uh, but for many of you, um, you you stayed committed and continued giving, and and that's been a huge blessing to this. So I want to thank you. Uh, for your faithfulness as we continue to move forward in faith to see the Lord bless. If you've come in the last two years, over the course of the next couple of weeks, I want to give you the invitation to join us in the capital campaign, right? We have a little over a year left, and, uh, and I don't want you to miss out on the fun uh, or the blessing, and I mean that in genuine sincerity. Um, what we give, and we're going to talk about this, uh, is, is a blessing to us, not just to, to those that we give Two. And, and if you've come the last two years, uh, you are going to be extended an invitation to join us in this capital campaign. Uh, every dollar we raise is invested in the mission of the gospel one way or the other. And, uh, and we'll be talking more about this as we move forward. The second thing that I want to talk about this morning, the second thing that, 
that is important and continuing to be ongoing uh, in the life of our church is that we're getting ready to send out our next daughter church. I've been talking about this a lot, uh, and I will continue to do so because this is going to be a pretty significant event in the life of Trailhead. At the end of this year, we're going to be sending Brian and Melinda Pacheco out to plant a church, uh, and they're heading just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, so um, not, not the next city over, right? Our first church plant was down in Collinsville, uh, just south of us. And then, you know, we, we reached over to Troy, and, and now we're going all the way to Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so this is actually our third uh, church plant. This is our third daughter church uh, as Trailhead, uh, which is... Um, one of the things that I think has gotten, brought me just tremendous, tremendous joy. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the, the movie X-Men. I mean, it is ancient at this point. Um, but in the movie X-Men, there's a scene where, where Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, is, is behind the wheel. And he's got a young rogue sitting next to him. Not a, not a rogue, but rogue, the character, a young female. Um, and, uh, and she's like, you know, when, when, when those things pop out, you know, the, does that hurt? And he just, just staring straight ahead, never looks. He's like, every time, right? Every time. And here's, here's the thing, y'all. Other pastors have asked me, man, doesn't it hurt the church when you send out church planters? Like, doesn't that hurt? And in some ways, I have to say, yeah, every time. It hurts every time. Um, right? It, 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 we're, when we plant a church, man, we're giving up some of our best people. We're giving up some of our best leaders. We're giving up some of our, our best servants on teams. We're giving up some of our most faithful givers. People that are committed to the mission of the church and give faithfully and sacrificially and regularly. Um, does it hurt? Yeah. Yeah, it hurts every time, right? This, this time we're sending out Brian. Brian. Brian has been one of my most faithful co-workers in the gospel since we launched the church. Uh, he, he's been with me since uh, we became Trailhead, and uh, he's been one of those guys who has brought boundless energy. Um, now, if you've ever worked with anyone with boundless energy, you know sometimes it gets messy, um, and, uh, and, and sometimes that can be uh, fun to try to lead, um, but he has grown, he has matured, and, and he has, over the course of the last decade, um, become a really a phenomenal leader at Trailhead. Um, and so when it came time, I've told each of my church planters, we've done this three times, and each time I've told my church planters the same thing. Um, they're always like, man, when it comes time to leave, are there any rules, right? Any, any things I can't do, any people I can't talk to, any people I can't recruit? And I'm like, dude, if you can lead them, you can take them. Right? If you can lead them, you can take them. And I thought that was honestly a pretty safe uh, thing to say to Brian. He's going to Phoenix, Arizona, for goodness sakes. Right? Um, this guy's not just going down to Collinsville. Um, he's, he's, he is going across the country. Um, currently, he's taking 13 people from Trailhead with him. 13 people are, are uprooting their lives, um, selling their homes moving across the country with him. Um, that, that surprised me. 
that was uh, that was pretty impressive. He has 21 people totally on his launch team, um, which is phenomenal. And these are leaders, right? These are people who lead in the church. These are people that that are like the bedrock people that we depend on on certain teams. These are people that are community group leaders. These are people that are committed givers and servants of the church. I've had, like I said, other pastors are going to be like, yeah, Steve, that's, that's exactly why uh, church planting makes me nervous, right? I think we're going to wait until we're ready. I think, I think we'll just wait until we're, we're ready. And of course, that always leads to the question, man, when are you, when are you ever ready Right? When are you ever ready to make that kind of sacrifice? When are you ever ready to to um, to make that kind of you know hit to your budget? When when are you ever ready to move into that kind of uncertainty? You actually have no idea what what the short term impact is going to be. What gaps are going to be created? What chaos is going to be unleashed? Right? The, Steve, doesn't this stuff make you nervous? And I'm like, no, it actually makes me excited. It actually makes me excited. You know why? Because I actually believe what Jesus said, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like, I actually believe that. Like, like he wasn't just giving us a nice hallmark quote to put on our mugs. Like, oh, that's a nice thought. No, like, like genuinely, he is revealing one of the fundamental principles of creation. It is better for you. You will be more blessed when you give than when you receive. You will be more blessed when you move into generosity than when you hold back in self-protection. You will be blessed. We will be blessed as we push in to the sacrifice of generosity. More blessed than if we were to hold back, to keep what we had and try to get more. If we were worried about, about oh no, uh, what if we lose these leaders? Or, oh no, what if we lose these, these members? Oh no, what if we lose this measure of our budget? Um, you know, fear, I think, ultimately keeps us from stepping forward in faith. And greed thrives in fear. That's the, the, the emotional currency of greed is fear, right? But faith, man, it leads us into an abounding, abundant generosity, a joy in giving, because it's rooted in love. And that's kind of the point of our passage this morning. So let's talk about our passage. There's a weird framing to the parable we're going to be looking at, and I think we're going to, we need to pay attention to that. In fact, I think we're probably paying a little bit more attention to that than the parable itself. But, but everything Jesus says in the rest of, of what we're going to be looking at in, in Luke 12 uh, flows from this weird encounter, right? Take a look at verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And we're like, well, all right, weird. Well, in the Jewish culture, remember, in Middle Eastern culture, um, often it would have been the eldest son who would either receive the lion's share of the inheritance or all of the inheritance. And then it was the eldest son's responsibility to steward what had been left to the family for the good of the family, right? And remember that, that don't think of it in terms like today when there's a will, you know, we all travel in from, from far away and, and we've, then we all go back to our, no, the, in, in ancient times, people lived in family compounds, right? People lived in, in shared 
uh, marketplaces, right? They shared the same fields, they shared the same crops, they shared the same herds, they, they, they had um, a, a shared communal existence, and, and that would have been uh, split up and shared among, among the children um, and the servants that had committed themselves to that homestead, right? And so apparently, something went wrong here, right? The eldest brother got the lion's share and just cut out the younger brother. Was like, you know what? I don't like you. You're rude. Or more than likely, he took full control of it and didn't give any control to the younger brother. Was like, all right, this is how this is going to be used. And the younger brother's like, wait, wait, wait. I've, I've been waiting forever for dad to die. And, uh, and now that he's gone, I should have a say in how this is all run. And the older brother's like, no, I don't think so. Um, we don't know. We don't know if the older brother was being unjust or just, if the younger brother was being immature or if he had a, an actual beef, right? Um, what's interesting is, is the Lord's response. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? <laughs> um, what an interesting response, right? I love it when Jesus does this stuff. Right? We talk about the Jesus juke. Uh, this is definitely a Jesus juke. G- often when you come to Jesus and you try to manipulate him, you're going to get a response you never expected. Um, and, and he's often not going to simply, you know, we, we, we expect Jesus to be nice and soft and polite and, and you know, courteous. And, and Jesus just calls us out, man. He just, he just speaks the truth. And so he kind of cuts to the heart of the matter, right? The younger brother was basically showing up trying to manipulate the position of Jesus to get what he wanted. He wanted Jesus as a, a leading rabbi to put a word in on this because in an honor-shame culture, his opinion carried great weight, right? If he weighed in on the side of the younger brother, that would put a tremendous amount of social pressure on the older brother to then uh, uh, act in, in concert with the younger brother's desires, right? He, he was ultimately saying, hey, man, uh, I could really use a good word here because if you gave me a good word, I could, I could leverage that to get what I think is fair. Now, what's interesting is, again, we don't know if the older brother is fair or unfair. We don't know if the younger brother is deceptive or being truly defrauded. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Jesus is like, I'm not here for that. Like, I'm not, I'm not here for that. You're, you're playing a game I'm not going to officiate. You're part of a paradigm that I'm outside of. I'm not going to operate in that paradigm. I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to step into it, try to reform it. I'm not going to step into it to try to, to make it work right. I'm going to call you out of it. I'm going to show you there's a different way, a better way, right? I, I'm not here to, to play your game. I'm here to set you free from your prison, right? Take a look at verse 15. And he said to them, and by them, we, it would be his disciples, but it would also be anybody that is there, assuming the, the, the guy himself. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says, take care and be on your guard. Take care. The Greek word there, the root of it means to see. All right? Keep your eyes open. Stay watchful. There's something sneaky here. Like, like keep your eyes open because there's something here that, that is gonna, you're going to miss it. If you don't know how to see it, if you're not looking to see it, you will miss seeing it. Take care. Keep your eyes open. 
stay alert, be on your guard. Because not only is it hard to see, it's dangerous. Not only is it um, deceptive, but it is dangerous. Right? And what is this thing? It's covetousness. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Covetousness is one of those great Bible words that we don't use in broader circles, right? Try to throw that out in casual conversation, see how that goes over this week, right? Just, just see, you know, use it in the office or maybe around the dining room table. Or, um, you're going to get a reaction. Uh, it'll be entertaining. Uh, but it's a powerful word, right? Jesus' use of it here, covetousness, is, is, is intentional, right? It's, it's a Greek word that's actually a compound word. It's made up of two different Greek ideas. Echo, which means to have, and pleuro, which means to fill, or to fulfill. Covetousness is when we're looking to have something that fulfills us. We're looking to have something that fills us. Right? We're looking to some external thing to meet an internal need. We're looking to um, something to fulfill us. Right? It could be materialism. Right? We live in a very materialistic culture. And, and this is so common, right? If I could just have that new car, if I could just have that new phone, if I could just have a bigger house, if I could just have a stainless steel refrigerator, oh no, now it's the matte white. If I could just have the matte white refrigerator, right? If I could just have, if I could just have whatever the next, right? If I could just have a nicer watch, if I could just have whatever it is, right? Could be materialism, could be experiential, right? If I could just have that next vacation, Right? Okay, that one didn't work. I could just have the next vacation, but with better rules and boundaries, <laughs> right? Let's do it without the kids. Uh, or if I could just have that next vacation, whatever, right? If I could just have that next meal. If I could just go to that next restaurant that opened up in town. If I could just go to follow this specific five-star Michelin chef, right? And, 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 and consume everything he eats, right? Or it makes. <laughs> uh, could be experiential. It could be emotional, right? If I could just have that boyfriend, if I could just get that girlfriend, if I, if I could just get that spouse, if I could just have that kid, if I, could, if, I could, if I could just feel important and significant to that specific person. Covetousness. Covetousness is an inner hunger that says, I am not fulfilled, so I need to get more. I need to get more. Whatever we've decided is going to meet that inner need, since I'm still hungry, the solution is to get more. And when I get more, guess what? It doesn't take away the hunger. So what do I decide? I need to get more. Right? It needs to be bigger. It needs to be better. It needs to be in a different part of town. It needs to be, it needs to be new. It needs to be what it does is it puts us on the greed treadmill, right? The greed treadmill, where we're just running, 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 and we never get anywhere. There's always the promise of arriving at a destination, but you're never actually moving, right? And greed, the fundamental drive of greed is to keep what I have and get more. Because what do I need? Just a little more. Just a little more. That's all I need. And when you get just a little more, guess what you need? 
just a little more. I just need a little more vacation. I just need a little more salary, a little more retirement, a little more luxury, a little more vacation, a little more, a little, a li- ju- I, what do you need? Just a little more. And so the treadmill of greed keeps you running and running and running, but never arriving. Right? Jesus goes on, he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance. The word abundance here means exactly what it sounds like, right? It means superfluous, overflowing, excessive, right? Even if you had whatever it is you desire to an excessive level. Like you keep thinking, well, I just need a little bit more, but let's just blow that out of the water. Let's just give you not just a little bit more, but all of it. Let's say you had all of it, whatever it is that you think you need to finally be content, to finally be secure, to finally be joyful, to finally feel rest, whatever it is. Let's say we gave it all to you. Guess what? It's still not going to give you what you're looking to it to give. Because you're feeding an appetite something that will never fill it. You're distracting yourself, not fulfilling yourself. You are on a treadmill that will never get you there, no matter how fast you can go, how much you can get. One's life, the fullness of life, the flourishing of life, all the things you truly desire in life, it doesn't consist in the abundance, the overflowing excessiveness of your possessions. It never gets you there. It's alluring and seductive in its promise, but it is fundamentally deceptive in its fulfillment. It promises to take you somewhere, but it will never get you where you hope to go. Now, to illustrate this, Jesus gives a parable. Um, And in this parable, we, we read about this rich man. Let me just reread it again. And then he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. The land of a rich man produces superabundant crops. Right? So he's already wealthy. Did you catch that? Like he's already at a fairly high pace on the treadmill. Right? And it suddenly becomes superabundant. Like way higher, way more. The yield was, was super excessive compared to the investment, right? The land of a rich man produces so many crops, he has an abundance problem, right? He already has barns and silos and whatever else farmers use. I don't know, right? Kevin will tell you way more than me. But, but it's not enough because he had built the infrastructure for the abundance, but he didn't have the infrastructure for the superabundance, Right? So what do I do with this superabundance? I know. I will tear down my piddly little barns and I'll build newer ones and bigger ones. I will store all my grain and all my goods. Interesting addition there. 
We went from talking about just the superabundance of the grain now to including the goods that are also going to accumulate through this increased wealth. And what is he going to do with all of his goods? He's going to stick it in storage. <laughs> all right? I'm going to find barns. I'm going to store it there because I've got more than I can possibly use. So he builds larger barns, right? He's, going to, he's got this great plan. Some of you right now are like, I don't see a problem here. This sounds like good business. When you have too much grain, what do you do? Are you just going to let it spoil? you got to build the infrastructure to handle the superabundance. That's just good business. Right? Good business is, is, is about producing more and, and producing a greater amount. What's wrong with that? Some of you are like, well, of course he's in trouble. Now he's one of the super rich. And, and the super rich, man, they have more than they can need, and, and that's a problem, that, that super rich people are evil. Interesting to me, by the way, that so many of us that say that kind of ignore the fact that every American is super rich on the global scale compared to the rest of the world. All right, listen, y'all, we need to be careful not to read modern economic theories into an ancient Hebraic text. (laughs) Jesus is not talking about the virtue of capitalism versus Marxism. He is not talking about um, the undermining of free market economies, nor is he talking about free market economies. That's not what he's talking about. And I believe it's a misuse of the text to try to read our economic convictions into a text that was never intended to teach on those things. What is it intended to teach, right? If it's not trying to set up Adam Smith versus Karl Marx, then, then what in the world is, is going on here? The problem, y'all, the problem that Jesus highlights here isn't how much he had. It's his attitude toward it. He's not condemning the man for being a successful farmer. He's not condemning the man for having an an incredibly abundant crop. He's not not condemning the man for building better infrastructure to handle the superabundance in a responsible way. That's not what's going on here, right? Notice notice what he says. He he, he says, I will build this thing. I will do this thing, right? In verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink, marry. He says to his soul. He speaks to his soul, right? This isn't just about provision for his body. This isn't just about taking care of his family. This isn't just about being a good um, member of society. He is looking to his goods to be a protection for his soul. He is looking to an external thing to meet an internal need in his soul. He looks at all the superabundance and he thinks, I'm finally there. I don't, I'm not weak anymore. I'm not vulnerable anymore. I'm finally arrived. I have the security I've been craving. I have the significance I've been craving. I can have the rest I've been craving. Why? Because, Because I have finally found in this world what I've been craving. He looked to the world to give him what only God could give. 
His boast is fundamental worldliness. He is looking to the things that God provided in the world to replace his need for God. He is looking to the things of this world to do for him what only God can do and to be for him what only God can be. I have all that I need right here in this world. And then God calls his bluff, right? Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That soul that you think you can protect with all your goods. That soul that you think is finally secure, that soul that you think is finally significant, that soul that you think is finally going to be able to to find its perfect rest because you have finally accumulated. You got everything, man. You got it all. You won the lottery and you are super rich, right? That soul that you thought you could protect with your goods. Time's up, buddy. Parking meter just expired. Tow truck is coming. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're not in control. That's an illusion of control. You're not protected. That's an illusion of protection. You're not going to find rest. You know that. You're just going to gorge yourself on what you have, and then you're going to be unsatisfied with being gorging. You're just going to become bored with your superabundance. It's not going to give you rest. It's just going to become a new form of dissatisfaction in your life, man. Your barns can't do a thing to help you or save you. So Jesus is like, look, I'm going to take this this hypothetical situation, I'm going to give you everything, and then I'm going to take it to the other hypothetical extreme, and I'm going to take everything, because you are, he's highlighting the fact. What can you have that can ultimately protect your soul? What out there can meet the deepest needs in here? Is there anything out there that can genuinely and authentically meet the deepest needs in here? The answer is no. That's, That's the whole point of the parable. Right? With these extreme swings, right? All that security that you thought you had, where is it now? It's back there with those selfish sons who are going to argue about who gets to control it. The people now that that have your superabundance, you know what they're going to do? They're going to destroy their lives fighting over it. They've got to ruin each other. They're going to sacrifice true riches for these temporary riches. You fool. What made you think you could protect your soul with what you could get and what you could keep? What, what, thought, what made you think that you could fill your soul's deepest need for security or significance through barns full of grain, through a bank account full of money, through a house filled with new furniture, through a car with heated seats. <laughs> These things will give you temporary pleasures. But they will not give you contentment. These things will, will give you a sense of, of security, but they're not actually going to protect you. These things cannot do what only God can do. Right? And that's when Jesus brings the, the, the thing home in verse 21 where he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, applying it now, and is not rich toward God. Now, I think it is important to notice that the combination, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Um, 
Material wealth itself is not a sign of evil. It is our relationship to that material wealth. But remember, it is deceptive and it is dangerous. Because our covetousness kicks in. It's dangerous to have a lot of money. It's dangerous to be rich like an American on the global scale. Our scales are so... What we think of as normal globally is... is you know, what we, what we think of is, man, what I just need this for comfort. What I just, we, it, it's deceptive and it is dangerous. The way it warps our understanding of what's supposed to bring us contentment, what's going to actually bring us security, how we're supposed to actually relate to our goods and to this world, right? This guy's a fool. And so is everybody who looks to their earthly treasure to do for him what only God can do who looks to what he can get and what he can keep to fill him, to protect him, to provide for him, and ultimately to give him rest. We are fools if we're trying to be rich in this world. But we're not really, really wrestling trying to figure out what it means to be rich toward God. Because true riches can't be found in a lottery ticket. True riches can't be found in money or what things it can buy or in experiences or even in um, the temporary relationship to this world. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? What does it mean then? So if, if, if it's a fool, if somebody's a fool, if, if they are rich in this world but are not rich toward God, what does it mean to be rich toward God? We're going to get into this. And we're going to dig into this more as we go. But this morning, I just want to give you a little glimpse. Jesus doesn't unpack it in this verse. He will as we move forward. But, but essentially, there's only one way to be rich toward God. And that is to receive the grace of God. Because it is in receiving the grace of God that we are awakened to love God in return, we are to receive the riches of grace that God has given us in Christ. And in that process, it'll awaken within us our responding love for God. And that awakens within us, it compels us to generosity, which is the exact opposite impulse of greed. It is receiving the grace of God and being awakened to a returning love for God that starts changing us from the inside out. It starts compelling us to receive instead of get. To receive love of God instead of get more. It it compels us to give instead of keep. To be a blessing instead of trying to hoard the blessing to being part of the flow of God's grace instead of trying to hoard God's grace, right? It's the only way to get off the treadmill of greed. And this is why Jesus wouldn't give the guy a ruling, right? Jesus was so rude. Why didn't he, couldn't he have, no, man. It would have been rude for him not to confront him. It would have been unloving for him to, to think, to let that guy walk away thinking that, that, even if his brother was unfair to him, that the solution to his deepest desires in that moment was, in fact, more money or a greater share of the inheritance, right? He didn't leave him on the treadmill. He challenged him to get off. 
Instead of finding the fullness of life in what you can get and in what you can keep, you're going to find the fullness of life in what you can receive and what you can give. Because, y'all, what is true wealth? What is true wealth? We all know it's love. It's love. That's the only true wealth in the world. Everything else is like a means to an end. Everything else is like a temporary tool. But love? It's love that enriches life. It is love that gives it meaning. It is love that brings genuine contentment. It is love that brings a genuine experience of security. It is love that introduces us into a genuine experience of rest from our anxiety and our fears. It's love. Love is true wealth. Everything else is a temporary tool. Not what you have. But with love, it's what you share. It's not what you keep, but with love, it's what you give. In conclusion, I want to share a a story. Um, I've shared it before, but it's so striking to me. Um, I decided to go ahead and share it again. It's been a little while. But I was in in Texas for, uh, I think it was an Acts 29 event, or maybe it was a church planter assessment. I was down there helping assess church planters. Um, But at the end of the day... I was hanging out with, with some other pastor friends, and one of them had a friend in, in the area, and he's like, you know what, I need to go visit this guy. I would love it if some of you would come visit with me. Um, he's an old friend, and, and I think we could, you know, it's, he's like, it's kind of hard for me, but I would love it if we could just go try to be an encouragement to this guy. And so I'm like, sure, we, a group of us get into a car, and we drive uh, to this guy's house, and I remember as we're driving up, I was like, you know, it's, you're driving on Texas highways, which... You know, can't see anything and it's, it's just whatever. But you eventually pull off and you're like, holy cow, what kind of neighborhood is this? It's, it's like weird open countryside. And then you get to this big gate and you go through the gate and man, this guy lived. He was, he was, um, he was wealthy. He was a guy who lived in extravagant luxury. Like he was one of the super wealthy. Right? He lived, it wasn't just a house, man. And it wasn't even just a big house by Texas standards. It was a mansion. I mean, it was a genuine mansion filled with, with uh, imported um, uh, I, uh, 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 marble and, and statues from Europe. And, and so we walk up to this house and, you know, there's like a 20 car garage over here and, and this monstrous place. And, and we go in and, and I remember the, the floors were, were, uh, like a dark reflective and all the windows and spiral staircase and mahogany bookshelves. Anything more luxury, luxurious than mahogany bookshelves full of leather books, right? And, and, um, uh, and, and we walk through the house and, and, you know, he gives us a little glimpse into the garage. He's like, some of these, some of the toys, maybe I'll show you some of these later. And, and yes, they were cool. And, um, and then we walk out back and out back, he's got this huge terrace with a zero horizon pool with pink lions, um, on each side imported from somewhere in Europe, um, fountain. And, uh, and he's sitting out there drinking some very nice bourbon and um, he's like, oh, come join me. And uh, he lived there alone. In his pursuit of all of his wealth, he, he had lost his family. He was at the stage of his life where a lot of his choices in earlier life were now being reaped, and he was, he was alienated from his children. Um, he worked so much that, that 
you know, trying to maintain a normal social life was, was almost impossible. He spent most of his time away from home. And when he came home, like I just walk out and I remember how striking it was to see him just sitting there surrounded by all this luxury alone. How lonely. How sad. How poor he was. You know what I'm saying? He had everything in the world. But he didn't have what made it worthwhile. I don't know. Jesus' words, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? He had sacrificed true wealth for, at the end of the day, garbage. Italian sport cars are really cool. You know? It's fun to climb in and out, fun to drive, fun to whatever, but is it really that fun when you don't have anybody to share it with? Or when all you're doing is sharing it with your buddies to show off so they can feel jealous of you and at the end of the day you still go home and you're alone? True wealth is love. That's true wealth. You can be someone who lives in a hovel. If it's filled with love, you are one of the wealthiest people on the face of the earth because you have joy and you have security and you have significance and you find rest. True wealth is love, y'all. Stay alert. Keep your eyes open. Be on your guard because it is deceptive and it is dangerous, this covetousness. I'm wrap up with a verse. 2 Corinthians 9, 10, and 11. Just to leave it on a, on a positive note here. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is inviting us to look at our wealth in a very different way. He says, He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us to look at our wealth in a fundamentally different way, not as something we've earned, but as something we've been given. Not as something that measures our status, but as something that ultimately can be a tool to honor God and serve and love others. To recognize that God is the one who gave us not only uh, our ability to earn the money, but our place, where we were born, the advantages we had, the, all the tools that we bring to bear on this world to do what we do and gain what we gain. He who supplies seed will multiply your seed. He, he who gives bread will multiply your bread. Why? So you can hoard it? So you can be enriched by it to your poverty? No. So that you can share it. You are enriched for generosity. Because it is as we learn to release what we've been given in love that we are enriched in love. Generosity is the antidote to greed. Generosity works on our hearts to actually change what we value. And generosity in the beginning always feels like sacrifice. And after it does its good work on our hearts, 
comes to feel like investment. Because it hurts less and we see the benefit more. And we stop focusing on what I'm losing and we start experiencing what we're gaining. So this week, let's spend a little bit of time looking at our own hearts, opening our eyes, asking God to show us, where is my heart? Where am I covetous? Where am I looking to what's out there to meet needs in here? And then let's bring that to the Lord and start asking Him to free us from the treadmill of greed into the abundance and superabundance of generosity. Let me pray for us. And we'll close there for today. Father, we thank you that um, you, again, we, we've talked a lot over recent months about this idea that, that in our, our own power and our own wisdom, we're kind of in an insane asylum, beating our heads against the wall, trying to imagine that we are free and joyful. Lord, you meet us in that place and then you invite us out. And and Lord, there are very few places that we wrestle more deeply than in the area of greed. I don't think we're unique in that. I think that's why you talk so much about money. We look to what we have. We look to what we can gain. We look to what we can buy to do for us what only you can do. Lord, will you release us from fear or maybe just allow us to take that first step to start seeing how much of our behavior is rooted in and motivated by fear. Fear that I might lose something. Fear that I might be made vulnerable if I sacrifice. Fear that if I actually take these steps of faith, I, I might be made weak. Or will you help us see those things and invite us to recognize that it is when we're weak that we're strong, that it's when we're dependent that we are secure, that it is when we, when we receive and give that we become truly rich. And Lord, bless. Bless the activities of Trailhead as we continue to move forward on mission. Bless us as we seek to be a blessing. And bless those through whom we're sending that blessing out. 